for me personally, I, I've never seen combat or war firsthand. But there is one thing that I know is absolutely true about war. Casualties are the horrific and the sad result of the reality of war. And in our country's relatively short history, no war has seen as many American lives lost than that of the American Civil War. It's estimated by some historians that over 700,000 soldiers lost their lives from both sides as a result of that war. Interestingly, though, only about a third of those were actually killed on the battlefield. Now, it's no secret that modern medicine is far more advanced today than it was 150 years ago. So it should be no surprise to us that of those 700,000 deaths, that two-thirds of those were the result of various diseases contracted from injuries sustained on the battlefield. The most prominent was that of gangrene. Now, if a Civil War soldier received the diagnosis of the disease gangrene, it was essentially a death sentence. Some historians argue that if a a soldier received the diagnosis of gangrene, that they already started digging that soldier's grave. And in universally every case, there was only one way to cure it. It was amputation. And by the end of the war, it's estimated that there were nearly 60,000 soldiers who had lost a limb due to gangrene. But think of the the, 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 the options they were presented with. Many of these soldiers desired to live life without a limb compared to living no life at all. Many chose to lose a limb rather than to lose their life. And I use this somewhat graphic illustration to open the sermon today because in the text that we're going to be reading, Jesus will use strikingly similar language. Jesus will use intense hyperbole to instruct his people to take radical measures to root out the sin of lust from their hearts. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a a physical Bible with you, feel free to take one of those out of the pew backs in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. This morning, we're going to be picking back up with our sermon series as we examine Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out the characteristics of the true people of the true King. And so in other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. And as we unpack our specific text together this morning... My desire is to point out two truths in which my hope is that we will grow to love and to treasure Christ in such a way that we will flee from the sin of lust and that we will run with haste towards Christ. So if you're someone who likes to take notes or you just like to have a a general idea of where we're headed this morning, then the main point of the sermon is this. The true disciple will do whatever it takes to pursue sexual purity. The true disciple will do whatever it takes to pursue 
sexual purity. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll jump in. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, picking up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount, the word of our Lord says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind to your people. God, I pray that this morning, though we are confronted with a difficult text, God, I pray that you would convict us of our sinfulness. God, that you would convict us of our brokenness according to your perfect law. But God, I pray that you would bring us humbly and gently before the cross. God, I pray that we would recognize your beauty and we would treasure you today that we would come to see and remember the good news of the gospel. So God, I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. Would I decrease so that you could increase? God, would your spirit be poured out on this place this morning? Lord, sanctify your church and build up your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week we we took a quick break from the Sermon on the Mount to celebrate Easter. But if you remember back two weeks ago, Doug did a phenomenal job of laying a foundation and walking us through verses 21 through 26, where Jesus points out that keeping the law externally is not the same as keeping the law internally. And that if a person is, is angry with their neighbor, or if a person hates their neighbor then they've actually already committed murder in their hearts. And today, Jesus is going to apply these same principles to the law against adultery, as he will explain to the crowd that he's preaching to that the law against adultery not only speaks to the physical act of adultery, but also to the heart that is full of lust. And this leads us to the first truth found in this text. Lust begins in the heart. Lust begins in the heart. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now Jesus begins this portion of His teaching just as He did the last by beginning with the words, You have heard that it was said. And he then proceeds to quote the seventh of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 saying, You shall not commit adultery. Now, the seventh commandment is short. It's simple. It's directly to the point. Yet if you were to read the seventh commandment in Deuteronomy 5 and continue excavating that book, you would arrive in Deuteronomy 22 where it is said that a man who has committed adultery is to be put to death. 
You see, this is how important God sees the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. To defile the marriage covenant, to defile this commitment through sexual promiscuity was to commit blasphemy to the nth degree, thus resulting in the death penalty that ensued. And for us in our context today, it can be tempting to, to, to think things like, you know, I know adultery is wrong. I know I probably shouldn't cheat on my spouse. I know, you know this thing or that thing is wrong. But, but God, were you really justified in condemning the ancient Israelites to death for it? And the answer is a resounding yes. You see, marriage fidelity is a prevalent theme throughout the entire Bible. Outside of the work of Christ on the cross, the institution of marriage is arguably the clearest picture of the gospel that we have revealed to us in the scriptures. Think about how often God uses the picture of marriage to describe his people in the scriptures. You may remember a few months ago, we just finished preaching through the book of Revelation. And do you remember how Revelation ends? The book of Revelation climaxes at the end when the the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. The bride of Christ, the church, is united with the groom, Christ. And there's there's this feast of jubilee and joy because the bride and the groom have been united with one another. The church is frequently referred to as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. But even in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Israel, are often used in allegory as a picture of a bride. And for the Pharisees who would have heard Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, they would have given an emphatic yes and amen to Jesus' words condemning adultery. Saying that, that adultery broke God's holy law. But not even the Pharisees in their rigorous and intense study of the law, saw how deep the law was actually meant to penetrate our hearts. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus excavates a little bit further. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, this was the point that the Pharisees missed. The Pharisees were were bent on keeping the law externally. They were so caught up with making sure that they kept the law externally, in which they rightfully had a disdain for marital affairs, yet they missed the true implication of the law altogether. You see, keeping the law outwardly did not mean that they weren't breaking the law inwardly. The Pharisees wildly misunderstood the scope of the law. And this is why Christ does not simply point out just the law. He doesn't just simply reiterate the law, but instead he points to God's heart behind the law. And if you think about it, this makes verse 17 so much sweeter. Remember a few weeks ago we unpacked verse 17 where, where Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but actually to fulfill it. When we see Jesus unpack the law in these verses... We're brought before a God that is, that is fully man, truly man, but, but as radically different than we are. 
You see, Christ was not merely a good guy who came and did some good things while he was here on earth. No, Christ was perfectly pure. Christ not only kept the law externally, but he also perfectly kept the law internally. And for us today, with a, we have a sinful nature that is radically bent towards seeking out sin. And it is impossible for us to imagine exactly how Christ did that. Our hearts are wicked and sinful. They are desperately broken and radically set on seeking out lust and adultery. And when they're left to their own devices outside of Christ, that's what we get. We only get lust and adultery, more and more sin. Friends, you may be an expert at polishing up your life externally. You may have woken up this morning and and put your best face on and brought yourself to church with a smile on your face. You may think as though you have everyone around you fooled into thinking that, you, that they think that you have your life put together. But friends, the heart of the law, the heart of Christ, cuts to our hearts, not merely our actions. And this is why Christ points out that adultery begins with the heart that is full of lust. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And it was in the 24th Psalm when David said, He who has clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord. And so it should be really no surprise to us that Jesus takes the matters of the law directly to the heart. You see, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to point out in his teaching. He is instructing the crowd sitting under the Sermon on the Mount in the first century. And he is instructing us today that if we look at another person with the intention of lusting after them, then we are guilty of adultery. We deserve the same punishment of death that God reveals in Deuteronomy 22. But you may be sitting here this morning thinking like, well, Andrew, why is that the case? Why would I deserve death simply by a thought? It's just a thought. No one knows my thoughts. No one knows my desires. Why is that worthy of death? Sam Albury, who is a, he's a pastor and he's an author in Nashville, Tennessee, commenting on this text, once wrote, saying, quote, Jesus is saying that her sexuality is precious and valuable. That she has a sexual integrity to her which matters and it should be honored by everyone else. Jesus is saying that this sexual integrity is so precious that it must not be violated. Catch this. Even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Even if she were to never find out about it, she would be gratefully wronged by being thought about lustfully. Jesus is actually showing us that our sexuality is far more precious than we might have ever realized. And that his teaching is actually a form of protection of it. 
You see, to, to look at a person with the intention of lusting after them is to look at a person in such a way that says, if the world revolved around me, and don't miss that because the, the idea of lust and lusting after someone truly does put us in the center of the universe. But to look at a person with lustful intent says, if the world revolved around me, if I could have everything my way, I would do whatever I want, however I wanted, whenever I wanted to that person with absolutely no consequences, and it would be exactly to my pleasure. That is what it means to look at someone with lustful intentions, to lust after someone in your heart. Friends, do you see how selfish that is? Do you see how despicable lust truly is? Understand that a heart that is full of lust is a heart that is supremely focused on serving self. And a heart that is full of lust is not a heart that mimics the heart of Christ because lust, whereas it seeks to serve self and elevate self, Christ seeks to serve others. Those two things are diametrically opposed to one another and they cannot coexist with one another. Jesus unpacks the true implication of the law for us to expose just how wicked and sinful we really are. Jesus unpacks the law for us so that we can be confronted with just how desperately we need a Savior. And friends, this is why the gospel is the only remedy for a heart that is stricken with the cancer of lust. Jesus makes it clear in verses 29 and 30 that lust will undoubtedly lead a person to hell if not rooted out. And for us, as we find ourselves living in a culture that is constantly bombarded by sexual images and enticements, it can make it seem so incredibly difficult to overcome this sin. And I just want to be very frank and very honest with you. If you are here this morning, and you feel as though you are being crushed by the weight of your sin, if you're being confronted with the realization that I have lusted after someone in my heart and I deserve the death that God lays out in Deuteronomy 22, friends, if that is you this morning, let me gently lead you to the cross of our Savior. By the implication of the law, If you and I have looked at another person with the intention of lusting after them, we deserve death. We deserve an infinite punishment because we have broken the law of an infinitely holy God. But God, the famous words in Ephesians 2, but God who is infinitely rich in mercy sent Christ, His Son, who perfectly kept the law internally and externally. He lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't because of our sin. And He ultimately bore His cross at Calvary and He died the death that we deserved on the cross as a substitution in our place. So that if we trust in Him alone, and friends, it is only through Christ alone that one can be reconciled with God. But if we trust in Christ alone, then we will not have to face the infinite punishment in hell 
Because Christ took our infinite punishment on himself. If you have never trusted in Christ as the one who bore your punishment on the cross, I plead with you to do that this morning. If you have never trusted in Christ alone as the propitiation for your sin, please do not leave here today without trusting in Christ as the one who gives us a new heart. Trusting in Christ alone as the one who perfectly kept the law in our place, bore our sin on himself on the cross, died the death in our place so that we can, though we are still sinful, be reconciled back to God. Friends, if you've never trusted in that Jesus, I plead with you to trust in him today. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. You don't have to tidy up your life and and, and get your house in order before you come to Christ. You don't have to fix all the, the, the brokenness and the mess in your life to come to Christ. All you have to do is recognize your sin, cry out to him, and he will save Friends, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins. His grace and his mercy break the chains of our slavery to sin, which then liberates us to root out sin like lust in our hearts. Friends, trust in him and he will be quick to save. Christian, If you've already trusted in the the grace and the mercy that that Christ freely gives, then my exhortation for you does look somewhat similar. Understand that you do not graduate from the gospel. The gospel is no elementary doctrine that we check the box and move on to weightier matters. The gospel is the weightier matter. And so if you find yourself waist deep in the swamp of lust... Friends, stop trying to white-knuckle your way out. Stop trying to dig yourself out of the hole because you're only going to dig yourself deeper. Friend, remember the gospel. Christian, remember the good news of Christ. You have been forgiven of your sin. It was paid for on the cross. And you will never be able to out-sin God's grace. Because the gospel, again, doesn't call you to clean up your life before God dispenses grace to you. God freely and happily and joyfully dispenses grace on his people. So if you find yourself waist deep in the swamp of lust this morning, turn back to the cross and be comforted by the fact that God delights in pouring out his love and his grace and his mercy on his people. You see, sometimes it, it, can, it can be tempting to you know, beat ourselves over the head when we're, when we're confronted with a text like this. And I was even telling Jared the other day that if I were to preach this text you know, a month ago or a year ago, that I probably would have done that. I would have come blazing out of the gates and said, stop watching porn, stop falling into the temptation of lust, stop doing these things. But friends, this morning... I don't want to beat you over the head with God's word. I simply want you to recognize and cherish your Savior in such a way that when you you are confronted by the temptation of lust 
And Satan, he, he brings the temptation of lust to you on a silver platter. And it looks so enticing that you will see it and you'll recognize it for the slop that it is. And you will turn and you will desire nothing more than to run towards Christ. That is my hope for us this morning, friends. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to overcome the sin of lust. It is only when we are reconciled back to God, when Christ gives us a new heart, the heart of flesh, then we are able to begin rooting out the sin of lust in our hearts. So friends, trust and believe and remember the gospel this morning before you ever try to root sin out of your life. The gospel frees us from the slavery of lust, which in turn allows us by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us to begin rooting out sin in our lives. And this leads us to the second truth found in the text. Lust must be killed. Lust must be killed. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it would be better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You see, after Jesus teaches the proper understanding of the law, he then moves to a proper application of the law. In these verses, Jesus uses extreme hyperbole to point out one important truth that that we should not miss today. The true disciple will do whatever it takes to pursue sexual purity. The true disciple will do whatever it takes to pursue sexual purity. Now, out of the gate, you know, we can, we can be confronted with a text like this and we can think, well, Jesus, are you really advocating for tearing out our eyes? Other translations read gouging out your eye. Should we really cut off our hands? Historically, there have been famous figures in the church who have taken this verse literally and they have uh, mutilated their bodies to try to keep this command. Friends, know that Jesus is not advocating for literal body mutilation here. Instead, Jesus uses this literary device, this intense and extreme hyperbole, to shake us awake to the spiritual reality that lies ahead for those who are ensnared to the sin of lust. Jesus implies to the crowd and and us today as we're reading His Sermon on the Mount that we should be willing to give up anything in our lives so the sin of lust can be rooted out. Just think about for a minute how important your, your sight is, your eyes are. Think about how important your hands are. I mean, I'm using mine right now, holding this microphone. I do a lot of funny hand motions with this, with my free hand. Uh, I'm looking at you guys right now. Our sight and our hands are wildly important to us. I mean, I this this verse is somewhat even personal for myself because my my mom is my mom's blind, and, and I know how much she would love to have her sight. 
how important sight is to us. And yet Jesus teaches that we should be willing to give up anything to fight against lust, even the things that we deem as necessary for everyday life. But not only should we be willing to give up anything, but notice the manner in which Jesus calls us to give these things up. He calls us to tear out our eye, to cut off our hand. He doesn't say, well, when it's convenient, you know, just close your eyes, just close your eyes, you'll be, you'll be fine. You know, whenever, whenever your hand causes you to sin, just give it a little smack on the, on the wrist and it'll be totally fine. No, Jesus says, gouge it out, tear it out, cut off your hand if you so need to, if that member is causing you to sin. Jesus' tone is graphic and it is urgent and it is painful. D.A. Carson, who is a, uh, he's a, he's a, a professor, he once stated that we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it. We must not flirt with it. We must not enjoy nibbling a little part of it around the edges. No, we are to hate it. We are to crush it. We are to dig it out. Why? Because sin leads to hell. And that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously. You see, D.A. Carson would, would argue, and I would, I would argue as well, that often killing sin, and especially the sin of lust, can be incredibly painful. And it can be incredibly difficult for us to do. Friends, it is no easy endeavor. Just as gouging out the eye or cutting off the hand is no easy or light endeavor. Now for us today in our context, it's no secret that the sin of lust predominantly manifests itself in the form of pornography. There was one Christian research firm that conducted a study in 2016 with both believers and non-believers alike that concluded that one in three Americans actively seek out pornography at least once a month. Believers and non-believers alike. And with the trajectory of, of our culture, it wouldn't surprise me if that number is higher today. And with a statistic like that, that for many of us it, it's, it's alarming, I am not naive enough to think that, that this particular sin, struggling with things like pornography, is not rampant and active in the lives of some of our people here today. Brother or sister, if that is you, like I, I just, just for a moment, I want to encourage you, just put notebooks down, phones up, not thinking about what we're going to do for lunch today or what's going to happen this week. Just, just eyes for just a moment. Brother or sister, if that is you, I am begging you to recognize the heinousness of your sin. I'm begging you to stop defiling yourself. I'm begging you to stop defiling the person on the other end of that screen. Friends, pornography is specifically sinister because it is so easy to hide. It is so easy to cover up. It's so easy to, to, to just hide it and keep it to yourself and think that no one is ever going to know about this. It can be tempting for us to think, well, you know, a 10-minute video surely won't change the way I view men or women. 
A 10-minute video surely won't change the way that I view marriage. Surely it won't change how I view the people around me in the world today. But trust me, it will. You cannot simply watch pornography and move on. You don't see something like that and especially habitually watch something like that and simply move on from it. It scars your mind and your heart and it radically reshapes the way in which you view the world around you. So brother or sister, if you are here this morning and you are actively watching pornography, I want to give you three really practical steps that will help you permanently root this sin out of your life. And these steps are not exhaustive. I don't claim to be the guru of of overcoming this sin. But I want to give you these these three very practical steps to to take home and and to simply begin trying to root this sin out of your life. And before we dive into these things, let me just give a caveat. This is a sin that's very pervasive. As I said, it's very easy to hide this sin. It's very easy to to struggle with this sin and, and put it on the back burner and not think anything about it. But take it from someone like me. That if you're thinking right now, like, Andrew, you have no idea how pervasive this is in my life. This has been a habitual uh, thing in my life for years now. There's no way that I could overcome this. It'll unravel my marriage. It'll unravel the way people around around me see me. Friends, take it from someone like me who has struggled severely with this particular sin in my own life, you can't see victory over it. You can overcome this sin by the power of the Spirit. So three very practical application points to to root out the sin of your life. Now again, obviously this falls, these three application points fall under the umbrella of being in Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, I wouldn't like, if if you're not a believer and you simply try these tactics Maybe a band-aid over a gushing wound, but it's not going to work. These three, these three practical steps fall under the umbrella of being in Christ, having a heart that, is, that was once stone that is now flesh. But the first very practical step I would encourage you to take is call it what it is. Call it what it is. I had an art teacher in high school. I'm not an artsy person. So I only took one art class my entire life. But I had an art teacher in high school once say, if it looks like paint, if it feels like paint, and it smells like paint, it's probably paint. And that same sentiment is true when recognizing your struggle with pornography. If you are watching porn daily, if you are hiding it from those around you, if you're feeling little to no remorse over your sin, brother or sister, you're not struggling with porn. You're actively giving into it. It took a a faithful and godly brother to look me in the eyes after I met with him week after week after week and I said, man, I stumbled again. I stumbled again this week. I dropped the ball this week. I struggled with pornography this week. And it took that faithful and godly brother to look me in the eyes and say, yeah, man, I don't think you're struggling with pornography. Struggling looks like putting up a fight. When you're in the boxing ring with someone and, and you're struggling with them, you're at least dodging or you're, 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 you're swinging a counter punch. But 
He said, brother, there's no, there's no fight in you. You're not fighting. You're simply letting this sin punch you in the face round after round after round. And you continually and openly and freely step back in the ring after it, continu- it continues to punch you in the face. Friends, we must stop baptizing our sin with cute spiritual language like struggle and stumble when we are purposefully and habitually tripping over it. You know, if I am, if I'm walking through the room, I, I, uh, I have a really bad habit of uh, whenever I get home, uh, I just throw my clothes on the floor. That's kind of my, that's my thing. Um, but if the lights are off, if I walk in the bedroom and the lights are off and I trip over my pile of clothes on the floor, well, I may have tripped. I may have stumbled because I couldn't see. The lights were off. That's a trip. That's a stumble. But if the lights are on and there's a pile of clothes on the floor and I actively walk over, kick it, and fall, I didn't stumble over it. I didn't trip over it. I didn't struggle with that sin. I just fell over it. Friends, we must call sin, sin. Must call a spade, a spade. We must call paint, paint. So call it what it is. Secondly, equip yourself. Equip yourself. Now, for starters, I would highly encourage you to memorize specific scriptures that pertain uh, specifically to lust and sexual purity. Uh, If you would have come to our house last year, you would have seen uh, a number of scriptures posted in the kitchen, in the living room, right above my desk, in our bedroom. We had one in the bathroom, in the shower. We We had scripture posted everywhere so that we could memorize scripture that pertains specifically to lust and sexual morality. But on top of that, so memorize scripture, yes. But if you want an extra biblical resource that can help, uh, this book right here, if I can get it out. This book, written by a man, a pastor in Nashville, named Ray Ortland. The book is called The Death of Porn. Now there are, there's a bookshelf downstairs. If you go down the steps, take a right, there's a bookshelf there. has free books on it. There are a couple of copies of this left on the shelf. Please take one. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource to help. It, it's, it's geared specifically towards men, just be honest with you. But uh, women, you, you, could, you could gain principles from this. But this is a phenomenally deep and raw book that looks at just how despicable pornography is. But it also very gently and very humbly, and, and, and Ray Orland is, is phenomenal at doing this, shepherding the Christian back to the cross and pointing people to the grace and the mercy of Christ. So please, this book, these books are totally free for you. Grab one downstairs, read it. It's a short read. It's an easy read. It's a hard read. Like It's going gonna, it's gonna to be very honest and raw, but it is absolutely incredible. Uh, it's an absolutely incredible resource. But on top of, uh, of memorizing scripture and this book, I want to encourage you men, if you are struggling with pornography, we have a, a men's purity group that meets every other week here on Sunday mornings. I know for me personally and the other men who meet in this group, it has been a phenomenal, phenomenal space that we can come together, we can talk about deep matters pertaining to things like lust and specifically pornography, 
But if this, if this is something that you're interested in joining, please come find me, come find Harrison, talk to one of the elders. We would be happy to give you information on how to get plugged into that group. So call it what it is. Equip yourself. And lastly, and I would argue the most painful but the most necessary of the three, drag your sin into the light. Drag your sin into the light. Don't wait for your circumstances to change. Don't wait for your stage of life to change with the hope that that will cause you to stop watching pornography. Friends, take it from someone like me. Again, this is a very, preaching this text is a very personal and deep thing for me because this is something that I've struggled with, that I've seen victory over, but I used to desperately struggle with. But, but dragging this sin in the light, it looked like, I, I thought, well, maybe when I become a Christian, maybe that will help me you know, stop watching pornography. Didn't. I thought, well, okay, well, now I'm dating someone. Well, now that surely I'm dating someone, I, I'll, I'll stop watching this stuff. Didn't. Didn't stop. And then I thought, well, okay, now I'm getting married. Now I'm married. Surely it will stop now. And it didn't. And it wasn't until I drug the nastiness and the grotesqueness of my sin into the light that I began to see true gospel healing in my heart. Losing this battle in your life, don't wait for circumstances to change. Don't wait for life stage to change. Don't wait for all of these out there things to change. Friend, drag your sin into the light. After I close here in a moment, we will have prayer counselors in the back of the room. If you need to pray with someone, or if you need to confess a sin that is lingering in your life, and you need to drag the nastiness of your sin into the light and kill it, please do that. Please, please come talk to us after the service, and we would be happy and we would love to help you begin the process of healing in your life today. But not only can you confess today, but I, I can't stress enough how important one-on-one discipleship is. One-on-one discipleship is a great avenue for raw and honest confession where true gospel healing can begin to take place. And so if you're not meeting with someone one-on-one right now, I, please come find me after the service. I'd be happy to get you plugged into a discipleship relationship. So call it what it is. Equip yourself. Drag your sin into the light. Friends, Jesus is calling us to count the cost of what it looks like to follow him. And if we do decide to do so, drastic measures must be taken to fight sin in our lives. The life of the true disciple is costly. The life of the true disciple will be painful. But as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, wouldn't it be better to enter into the kingdom of heaven missing some of the things that we deem valuable today rather than keeping those things to ourselves and living a life that will lead straight to hell? I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. As the worship team comes up, I want to close by reading a quote from Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary. And I think this quote beautifully sums up this passage. Dr. Aiken says, When we are in Christ, 
We are able to guard our hearts from temptation. When we are drawn to Him like a totally devoted lover, the attractions fueled by lust lose their luster. They find no room in our hearts. Now in our hearts, in that innermost sanctuary, there is a place reserved only for Christ. Jesus certainly wants to lead and guide our behavior, but first and most importantly, He wants our hearts. He bought them. He owns them. And what He bought, we should gladly and freely give to Him. So treasure Christ above all in your heart, and the eye and the hand and the rest of the body will happily follow its lead. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind. Lord, tackling a difficult topic like lust and sexual purity, is, it's hard to wrestle with. God, we're so individualistic with our sexuality and with purity. But God, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is harboring sin in their hearts. God, I pray that they would confess that. Lord, that they would call it what it is, that they would equip themselves, and they would drag it into light, and they would begin to see true gospel healing in their heart. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being confronted with our sinfulness and taken to the cross. And God, that if we can trust in you as our hope in life and death, God, you are just and quick to save. So Father, I love you and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.